This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 65-inch. On this week's episode, we interview Conan the Librarian from UHF, actor Roger Callard. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. It's a podcast about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch you don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Happy birthday, Dave! Thank you, Ethan. Did you have a nice birthday? I did have a nice birthday. I got a lot of messages from a lot of our fans and past guests and future guests. They all wish me a happy birthday. I, we got a, quite a few voicemails on the 347 Spatula Hotline. Chris Sear called in, left a voicemail. UH Jeff and our listener Matthew, who called you a bunch of times for your birthday, also called in for my birthday. Oh, how awesome. I loved all of his messages for my birthday. How many did he leave you? Well, he left me one voicemail and one email. Oh, okay, Dave. I got like three or four messages and an email. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Matthew. (laughs) Maybe he didn't (laughs) like the stickers we sent him. (laughs) Matthew, we're going to need you to send those stickers back to us. (laughs) Or maybe he's just saving his phone calls to celebrate Frank's birthday. (laughs) That could be. No, Matthew, I really, I appreciate it. Everyone who called in, everyone who wished me a happy birthday on social media and text and everything. Thank you so much. It was really great to hear from everybody. That is so awesome, Dave. I I love that everyone wished you a happy birthday. Now, I do remember on my birthday, our good friend Chris Sear made a special drawing for me, and he said, don't worry, Dave has one coming. So, did he send you one? He did. He sent me this drawing, and it is a great drawing. I'm going to post it over in our group, group group.2000inch.com. He told me that there are five Weird Al references on it, and Ethan, I think you'll be able to figure it out, and I hope all of our listeners over at group.2000inch.com can figure it out as well. It's a really cool picture. I love all of Chris's drawings. Perfect, you know, Hanna-Barbera-esque style. Yeah, I love it. And I loved my birthday one, and I think it's just so cool. And I I look forward to seeing the one he makes for Frank. You know, I have no idea when Frank's birthday is, and I've never bothered to ask him. And frankly, I really don't care. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you there. Ethan, and I did see you on that fuzzball game show that you were on last week, the day before my birthday. (laughs) It was so cool. Yeah, thanks for getting in a Gill and Chill reference and saying that you were the 27th biggest Weird Al fan. (laughs) I don't know if I'm actually in the 27th place as far as Weird Al fans go, but I figured, you know, a little Weird Al number reference would be fun for for you and everyone else watching. (laughs) But I don't know if you noticed, Dave, but behind me, I had a Gill and Chillo right behind me during the whole show. Yeah, perfect product placement. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> it was pretty much an infomercial for shop.2000inch.com. The only thing you needed to add was a big giant flashing arrow that said, get this at shop.2000inch.com. <laughs> Next time, if they have me back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you think they're going to invite you back? Because I think you got robbed. You know, I I was surprised that I didn't win. You know, I had a really strong first round. I matched with a couple people. But then the second round, I didn't get any matches. And my competitor, the question was something like, you know, how does an athlete deliver a paper from his car? And she said catapult. And then the judges accepted matches for throw. 
So I, I didn't really agree with that. I don't <laughs> catapult is a device and throw is an action. So I didn't completely agree with that. And a couple of the puppets were on my side and said <laughs> that I should have won. <laughs> yeah, the puppets were definitely fighting for you. And I was fighting for you as well. I was like, oh, that's a little bit of a stretch. I wanted to know who the judge was that was making that call. Well, I missed out because the grand prize, of course, was trash. And uh, <laughs> you know how I love trash, Dave. So. Well, you must be bummed that you missed out on all that trash because, of course, Weird Al's song Trash Day is very important to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Well, overall, Fuzzball, the game show with puppets and the Electric City puppets was a lot of fun. And even though I didn't win, I would totally do it again. And I hope they will have me back. <laughs> or maybe they have you on. <laughs> oh yeah yeah they could have me on and i would have a gigantic velvet elvis painting in the background <laughs> <laughs> available at no it's not no it's not available <laughs> we should we should sell velvet dave and ethan's <laughs> that'd be fun <laughs> i think the shot we use offers something for tapestries so hey we could do it you could have a gigantic dave and ethan tapestry on your wall let us know if you think that that's something you want let us know at 347 spatula and we might be able to get that added to the shop yeah and if you have any other ideas for merch that you would want to actually pay for let us know and we we'll see what we can do <laughs> now dave i know it was just your birthday but i actually just this past weekend got the birthday card that you sent me Wow, you just got that? Man, it must have been lost in the mail or something. Yeah, well, it was postmarked last week. Oh, that's weird. Uh, I guess the post office, they must have lost it before they postmarked it? I've never heard of that happening. But Anyway, I, I appreciate the card, Dave, and I wanted to ask you, what are these pieces of paper inside the card? Oh, those are David Cash. David Cash? What's David Cash? It's the cash that you can use to buy things from my collection. Oh, cool. Oh, man. So you sent me $100 in David cash. What can I get with that? Well, you can trade your $100 in David cash for any autographed item of your choice. Wow. Oh, man. I would love that autographed Gump guitar from the Gump music video. Oh, no, no, no. Wait. Not stuff that's autographed by Al. Stuff that's autographed by me. Oh, and also not stuff from my Weird Al collection. It's from my collection of, you know, belly button, Lynn tapestries, my X-Men comics, those collections. Ah, uh, hmm. That, thanks, Dave. Uh, hey, don't you have a couple baseball cards, too? Do you have one of Fernando Valenzuela, you know, the baseball player? The guy who's the brother of our new sponsor, Angel Valenzuela, father of David Cash? I do. Would you like me to autograph that for you? Either that or a burrito burrito. All right, I'll do the card. This week's episode brought to you in part by Angel Valenzuela and by vegan Mexican restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double wrapped in a quesadilla burrito burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at burritosquared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a burrito burrito burrito, but every burrito 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 can be burrito burritoed. And every Angel Valenzuela can be Angel valenzuela So what's going on in Weird Al news this week, Dave? Well, the big news is that we finally found out what Al's appearance on American Dad is all about. Yes, yes. Now, there's some confusion over which episode number it is. Some places online say it's season 17, episode 14, and then some places say season 15, episode 15. But regardless, it's the episode called First Do Not Farm, 
And if you really want to check it out, you don't even need to watch the episode. Al posted a clip of it on his social media page. Now, I went over to his Twitter page and I watched it on his Twitter page. And let me tell you, out of context, this clip does not make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Now, even if you do watch the episode, it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. (laughs) But just to explain it a little bit, the Smith family has a farm and Roger and Stan want to sabotage the farm that Haley has taken over by using rabbits. So sabotage with rabbits is rabotage. And they say, hey, maybe we should contact Weird Al's people to see if he's interested in rabotage as a song idea. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense then, because in the clip, Al is singing a parody of Sabotage by the Beastie Boys called Rabotage. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in the clip, also, they do show Roger holding up a rejection letter from Weird Al. And Dave, I I think we should dive into this and really analyze this rejection letter. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. I mean, of course, we know from episode three inch when we talked to our guest, UH Jeff. New Sarah, who handles all the correspondence for a close personal friends of Al, including, you know, writing all the rejection letters for all the song <laughs> parodies that he gets. We know that Al does not accept any solicitations for song parodies. So Roger and Stan had to expect that they were going to get a rejection letter when they send off <laughs> their request to Al. <laughs> so on the rejection letter, it is on Weird Al Yankovic letterhead, and they have the quotes in the correct spot, which is really cool. And there's a little caricature of Al, and that is his only appearance in the episode, aside from his voice. There's no actual, like, Al that shows up. And the caricature is of classic Al with the glasses and the mustache. <laughs> All those glasses that I owned? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the cartoon version of your glasses that you own, Dave. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Great. <laughs> Now, there are a few red flags when you look at the letter. Yeah, there are more than a few red flags. There are, there are, there are a couple of word crimes in there. There's a, few, there's a few things that make me question whether or not that's even Weird Al's authentic autograph. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, Dave, you and I, we are experts in authenticating Weird Al memorabilia and something like a rejection letter. I think you and I would be able to look at and determine if it's authenticity. So looking at this screenshot, shot from American Dad, I am going to go out and say this is not an authentic rejection letter from Al. (laughs) First of all, Al would not be writing a rejection letter himself, and I don't even know if UH Jeff would write a rejection letter or just toss it in the garbage, but (laughs) let's assume that they do send a rejection letter. So, you know, there are several word crimes. You know, it's, it's tough to authenticate this as truly something written by weird al so let's read the letter dave just so people who don't have it in front of them understand what it says so it starts off dear roger comma we adamantly and the word adamantly the first letter a is capitalized and then there's a gigantic rejected you know one of those stamps that you see you know that says rejected you know (laughs) red bold letters you know it says your stupid request and the word stupid is in quotation marks there's no punctuation after the word request and it's signed weird al yankovic the weird and al are in quotation marks but the word weird is written in mixed case and the word al is written all in capital letters and yankovic is signed in script yeah so i mean Obviously, if Al was writing this letter, he would not use word crimes. He would not use quotation marks for emphasis, although arguably they put stupid in quotes as a reference to dare to be stupid. But he absolutely would sign his name 
with weird in all caps. But I will give them credit. The signature as a whole does look very accurate, except for that part. Yeah, I agree. It's actually a pretty good forgery if only the forger had actually studied Weird Al's signature. I looked at my leg and noticed that when Al signs weird, he always signs it in capital letters. I think you need to print off a picture of your leg and mail it to the American (laughs) Dad team. So I think the only true explanation is that in-universe, Weird Al did not write the letter and that a cartoon version of UH Jeff whose grammar skills are not as strong as the real UH Chefs, wrote this letter and then forged Weird Al's signature. So, shame on you, cartoon UH Jeff. <laughs> I bet he didn't tag hashtag Gill and Chill in his tweet either. Or in his rejection letter, for that matter. <laughs> shame on you, cartoon UH Jeff from American Dad Universe. <laughs> Now, there, there is one other little subtle thing that I don't know if you picked up on this, Ethan, but the way that they have Weird Al Yankovic in blue letters, that reminded me of the font on Off the Deep End. Oh, I didn't consider that. It kind of reminded me of just a very typical Weird Al font. It didn't scream Off the Deep End to me, but I definitely see what you mean. And the last thing I want to mention about Al's appearance on American Dad is he did not write the lyrics to Rabotage, as some people had speculated. And the other thing I want to clarify is I think I can confirm that this is not the appearance that Suzanne teased about on her Instagram a couple of months ago. <laughs> I agree with that. We will eventually find out what that is, I hope. But every appearance that Al makes, I'm going to anticipate that it's that until it happens. Now, there was another exciting tweet from Al this week. And of course, he posted a video with the caption, I remember my big 1985 comeback special like it was yesterday. What was this clip from, Dave? So this was a clip from back in 1985 when Al was on the Motown Review starring Smokey Robinson. The clip is so funny. So in the clip that Al posts, he is doing a straight cover of My Generation by The Who, which then, of course... He ends smashing his guitar. (laughs) (laughs) And the guitar smash, of course, was a prelude to when he smashes the guitar in concert when he does You Don't Love Me Anymore. Yes. (laughs) It's really odd, though, that he did this straight cover of this song. And this song wasn't a new song by any means at that point. The song came out in 1965. So, yeah, of course, it was a very recognizable song, but it was still really odd and very random for him just to do a straight cover. Now, I haven't seen this whole special. This is actually my first time seeing this, Dave. But my understanding is he also performed one more minute. Yeah, this is only a partial clip of his appearance on the Motown Review starring Smokey Robinson. He also does a performance of one more minute. So you might need to have been an Elvis Presley fan to notice this. But the whole appearance was a parody of Elvis's television special called Elvis, which more commonly is referred to as the 1968 comeback special. I didn't know that. What great trivia from our resident Elvis expert, Dave Elvis Rossi. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I not only know Weird Al trivia, I also know some Elvis Presley trivia as well. (laughs) Be sure to check us out on our other podcast, Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Elvis Presley podcast. Coming to podcast (laughs) apps soon. 
And what's interesting about this clip is by far that is the best quality that I've ever seen this clip in. I am so used to seeing this clip on my old VHS tapes, which have been taped over 18 million times and they're static and you know things are out of focus and everything. So it's really a treat to get to see my generation in. I mean, this wasn't like 4K HD quality, <laughs> but in much better quality than I'm used to seeing it in. Yeah, you could you could tell what was going on. It was it wasn't just like five <laughs> pixels slightly changing color. <laughs> so thank you, Al, for posting that. That was really a treat to get to see that. I'm very excited to welcome our next guest. Listeners of our podcast are definitely going to recognize him. You may have seen him portraying Conan the Librarian in the shadow cast during the screening of UHF on August 1st, 2009 at Alfest. Please welcome... Dave Rossi. Thank you. I'm so honored to be on this podcast. Yes, yes. We're so happy to have you here. Now, I got to ask you, Dave, when you got the role of Conan the Librarian for the shadow cast of UHF at Alfest, how did you feel? I was up for two roles, actually. I was up for the role of Gandhi, and I was also up for the role of Conan. And I actually decided to go for the role of Conan because if I went for the role of Gandhi, I would have had to shave my head. And I really didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that is such a difficult role to pull off as a shadow cast member. I mean, you got to stand still. You got to chop someone. You got to lift someone off the ground. How was that process for you as a shadow actor? In order to prepare myself for that role, I watched the clip Conan the Librarian over and over again multiple times. <laughs> what was really cool about it is that I actually had a real sword with me to do that clip. One of the guests at Alfest had found out that I was doing the role of Conan, and I said, well, I'm flying out there, so I'm not going to be able to carry a sword with me <laughs> in order to do it. And this guest said, oh, I have a sword. I'll bring it. And he brought it, and it was a real heavy sword. <laughs> I was afraid I was going to actually cut somebody in half. <laughs> so, Dave, do you remember who played the guy that you lift off the ground and the guy that you cut in half? I do. I remember both of them well. We actually rehearsed this several times. <laughs> My brand new wife at the time, we had just been married a couple days before. Jackie played the person who I lifted up. She came up and said, do you know where I can find any books on astronomy? And I said, don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? And I lifted her up, you know, by the neck. It was really sweet. Very nice for her honeymoon. She was lifted off her feet on her honeymoon. Very true. Very true. And then the person who I cut in half, that was my cousin, Jason. And we practiced that because I did have a real sword in my hand and I did not want to actually <laughs> slice him in half. So I actually had him, a little camera trick for the audience, I actually had him stand a little bit over to the side and I sliced behind him and it looked like I cut him in half. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Speaking of honeymoon, Dave, isn't today your wedding anniversary with Jackie? I wouldn't know. You stole my marriage certificate. Oh, yeah. Uh... Uh, let me check. Hold on. Yep. Today's your wedding anniversary. Happy wedding anniversary, Dave and Jackie. Wait, today's my wedding anniversary? I better go get a card. Remind me later. I will. And you should get some David Cash ready as well. <laughs> 
Happy anniversary, honey. Do you want the belly button or the X-Men comics? <laughs> this is great reliving my experience being Conan the Librarian at the Shadowcast at Alfest, but I don't know that it's really all that interesting for our listeners. I mean, I did not train with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was not, you know, Mr. USA, Mr. International or anything like that. I think what our listeners really want to hear from is they want to hear from the real Conan the Librarian. We are very excited to have with us a champion bodybuilder, actor, singer, and was named Mr. USA, Mr. America, and Mr. International, but we know him best as Conan the Librarian in UHF. Please welcome to the podcast, Roger Callard. How's it going, Roger? Dum, 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 dum. It's good, man. It's good, it's good to be here. It's, uh, it's good to be alive. Weird Al and UHF has turned into be quite a cult classic. There's no doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. How often are you recognized as Conan the Librarian? Well, honestly, a lot. Yeah? Because, <laughs> when, yeah, because a lot of the millennials and the guys that you know from the 80s that I've worked with, they always come up to me and they go, were you in UHF? <laughs> Were you Conan the Librarian? I go, yeah. Man, that was one of my favorite films. I, I love that film. I mean, w when we make film, we have no idea what it's going to become. I mean, we have literally no idea. But when you look over at a director and he's biting his lip and he's laying on the floor laughing, <laughs> you kind of you know you're in for something special. And... <laughs> You know, I, I've worked with Walter Hill, Ivan Reitman, you know, you name it. I, I worked with Academy Award-winning directors, actors. You go down the line. I've never seen a director fall on the floor laughing before. <laughs> as soon as I walked out with the wig on and, you know, the whole ton of regalia, Gene <laughs> fell on the floor. Jay, excuse me. I, I, I'm calling him Gene because I don't know if he's related to Gene Levy, but he kind of seems like he should be. Okay. If he isn't. But rarely do you see a director laying on the floor, holding his stomach, trying to be quiet when you're rolling. And I'm I'm trying to be in character, you know. Right. Never before in the history of television has there ever been a more powerful presence. And I look over, and he's laying on the floor, holding his stomach, fighting his hand. And I'm thinking, this is going to be pretty good. And then when we were out doing the uh, the helicopter sequence, here comes Weird Al with, with the Rambo uh, prosthetics on, <laughs> comes out of the trailer. I fell on the ground. I mean, it was just so ridiculous. <laughs> so were you in the Rambo scene? No, no, but I was there. I, I, I can't remember if I was doing wardrobe or what. Because it was out in the valley. But um, Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that Weird Al could have been a straight musician. He could have been a, a regular actor. He could have been a regular uh, stand-up comedian. But his musical talents were such that, and so strong, that that was the reason I'm fat and all those other songs that he sang. I mean, even even the the theme song, you know, for UHF. Yeah. I mean, very, very talented. And, and really kind of captured a niche, you know kind of the whining, you know, funny. And it takes a very intelligent individual to play dumb, like Tommy Chong or Suzanne Summers. 
you can't be stupid like Quill of Fish and play smart. Right. <laughs> it, it's impossible. You you can't pull it off because you don't have the subtleties and you don't have the the intuition and the sensitivity to really see it. You know, you don't hire people because they're dumb. You hire them because they're good actors who play dumb. And they're usually very smart people. That's usually the rule. So you can go from there. That's a good so point. You can tell I'm a medical graduate. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Roger, was your scene shot in L.A.? Yeah. It was also shot about um, three or four blocks from my home in Santa Monica, uh, near Mon- in a shop in Montana. I think there was... They turned it into a, a library. Hmm. It could even have been a library. I'm not sure. Right. So I was going to ask you, was that in a, an actual library or a bookstore? Because it looked like, you know, it's filled with books. So it, it probably started out as one of those, I would think. It was either a bookstore or a video store. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was like one of those, you know, little boutique shops along Montana. And uh, just hilarious. I mean, the whole I mean, when you look at the the people that were in it, Michael Richard, Kevin McCarthy, the guy who played Raoul's Wild Kingdom, he was slated to be the next Freddie Prince, and then he died. I mean, it, it just goes on. And Anthony, what's his name? Anthony Geary? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Philo. And uh, I can't remember Kevin McCarthy's son, Dad. Oh, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> what was his name? You know, John Paragon. Oh, he was hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> and then the, the girl, you know, uh, what was her name? Victoria Jackson. Victoria. Yep. Victoria. Yeah. She was great. Didn't have a lot to do as his sidekick. <laughs> right. Either. But, uh, and then the guy from Wheel of Fish was hilarious. Yeah. But Michael Richards, I mean, come on, Michael Richards, you saw what Kramer was going to be. I mean, those looks and. The, you know the physical humor oh, yeah. it, was, it was just there i mean <laughs> that that freaking scene where he's got the, the mask on and he's in the car and he, he's in the back seat and he goes hey you guys are from the pizza parlor pizza place. <laughs> and, the, and the one front goes come on boss let me kill him just let me kill him <laughs> was I mean, you know come on kids don't drink from the fire hose who wants to find the the marble and oatmeal, I mean, and the way he would walk. I mean, it was, it was Kramer. It was Kramer. <laughs> totally, totally was Kramer. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the speech, the great speech, everybody's, and it actually was a, a cool speech. I mean, it, it it actually got you on some level, which made it even more effective because it worked. I mean, it, it was funny, you know, because it's like watching Bambi, you know, you, you know you're going to cry. And you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, uh, and like I said, you never. I just did a film called um, Dwarf Hammer in Grand Rapids, yep. where we have an enclave of, of uh, independent filmmakers. And a friend of mine, Dan Feliki, who's done a lot of films, um, one of the actors came up to me and it, you know was kind of like reticent, reluctant to ask me. Excuse me, Mr. Cowan, were you in UHF? Is that you? I go, yeah. Okay. That was my favorite movie. I, I loved that movie growing up as a kid, which, you know, makes you feel really good to know that, you know, there's a little kid watching yeah. you. 
so many weird Al fans even just you know this whole community loves and has seen Conan the librarian millions and millions of times where did the that journey start did you audition for the role well because I was close friends with Arnold I think Jay kind of picked up on the fact that hey let's get a guy who looks like Arnold and looks like the, and, and, is a, and is familiar with it mm-hmm. and and it just worked you know and <laughs> the funny part is Arnold has never to this day said anything about it no <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny about that guys is right during the almost that same time I played Ted Kennedy and of course I was at the 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 engagement party and, and Martha's Vineyard and talking to Ted and all this. Shit. And now I'm playing Ted Kennedy in Chappaquiddick, which was, you know, kind of a tenuous ground because when you play a well-known character, it it's almost caricaturish if you don't do it right. So, yeah. And uh, I pulled it off, but it, like I said, it, it's kind of funny that I ended up playing Conan, you know, in a, in a funny way and then Ted Kennedy you know I'm sure the the Kennedys weren't real happy with me you know, but, you know I'm not going to say no I'm not going to do it because I know Arnold and Ted Kennedy right right but we find ourselves in those positions you know quite often because Hollywood is a small minuscule subculture even though people see it as a, this big thing and it's really not I'm surprised to hear that you never brought it up to to Arnold just to get his his reaction. Well, I don't think he he was real fond of it, but I really didn't care because <laughs> Arnold kind of kind of likes things to be about him, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing for Saturday Night Live, you know. Right. <laughs> I was right. actually with him when Dana Carvey and. Uh, What's the other guy's name? It was Dana Carvey and, and the other guy who played uh, I'll Pump You Up. And they were pitching the idea to Arnold at the Rose Cafe. Oh, wow. And Dana kind of became a, a bodybuilding type uh, fan because he ended up hosting one of the shows. But the, he was going through the whole shtick, you know, the slab of lounge and, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> I'll flick you with my little finger and the baby poop. I mean, it was... <laughs> <laughs> they were very funny and they were doing that routine i liked it because it was saturday night live right you know right so no matter what happens on saturday night live it's good because it's funny so kind of funny to be around all of that to see that and that kind of really made dana and, and then of course the church lady you know right <laughs> he was actually a, a brilliant impressionist yeah the master of disguises almost like a turtle in that one. <laughs> he was very, very talented. What's the other guy's name? It was uh, Kevin Nealon and... Uh, Kevin. Kevin. Hans and Franz. Hans and Franz. I'm going to pump you up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't move. My lots are so big. All the girls are looking at me. Why is everybody looking at me? They were, very, they were very, very intuitive about the whole thing. And uh, if you think about it, that minuscule subculture of bodybuilding changed the world at that particular time because suddenly it was very popular to work out. It, it certainly changed the face of, of sports. 
to change the for, face of law enforcement. It, and athletic, suddenly Bobby Fisher's working out with weights. You know, it was kind of a stigma. Like when I grew up, I was a runner and a boxer, and my coach was like, well, I don't want you lifting weights. You're going to get muscle bound. And my coach at Michigan State was George Perlis, who became the defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers and won like five Super Bowls. Wow. He walks, he walks up to me one day and he goes, Collard, you know what? He goes, you're getting too big. And I said, Coach, I'm one of the fastest guys on the team, right? Yep. I said, I have one of the highest vertical leaps, right? Yep. Well, I don't think I'm getting muscle bound. Yeah. <laughs> walked away, kind of scratched his head, went to the Steelers. And if you remember, Mike Webster, you had to bench 500 to be on the offensive line. So he made a 180 degree ideological turn as to weightlifting, which, which was kind of a ubiquitous thing, which happened in society. Suddenly, you know, on dating game, will I work out and, you know, Everybody's working out, you know, it's my hobby. Right. And it, it changed the face of our military. I mean, the way we look, you know, the Olympics. So it was kind of a, it was a cool time to, to be out there and to be a part of that whole thing. And uh, Weird Al just happened to, you know, tap into the whole Michael Jackson era that, you know, he's, he's really a genius if you think about it. I mean, some people, you know, have a sense of what they're doing while they're doing it and i think he did yeah because he was out on a limb guys if you think about it i mean especially with his songs i'm fat you know and michael jackson and and just his whole character i mean it, it, it was a gamble but it, it worked and i don't know what the the i don't think when conan came out worldwide i don't think it was a big hit or anything but now 20 years later people are still talking about it i don't know about normal people but at least with other al fans we talk about conan the librarian a lot more than conan <laughs> <laughs> well it's more interesting it is it's more, interesting. It's more memorable it's more interesting. <laughs> well that guy also that guy was in hercules in new york the guy that i pick up Oh, really? you remember? Yeah. He was one oh. of the guys from Hercules in New York, I think. Wow. Oh. Huh. I'm almost positive that it was him. Now, do you actually pick him up, or is that movie magic? I grab him, and I, li I, I practically lifted him off the ground because he wasn't very big. Yeah. But there was, <laughs> like, a, a little thing, and he just kind of stood up on it. But I was... I was pulling his neck. Really yeah. hard. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a very big guy, so wasn't that hard to yeah. <laughs> move him around. Right. Excuse me. You have any books on astrology? <laughs> I mean, the, the typical, you know, nerd of the time. But... Right. So now for your famous line, you know, is, is the accent, is that, was that a direction or was that an improvisation or how did that come about? Well, it, it came from like, you know, being around Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? I mean, that whole, the system. <laughs> the system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just, it was crazy. <laughs> It was so 
uncharacteristic of me, but I do a lot of different voices anyway, so it's kind of fun to just. Well, that's why I can <laughs> sing because you know I I can modulate it. And, right. Because people look at you and they go, well, I didn't know you could sing. Because we always associate singing with a certain type, you know. And then when someone can really sing and they don't fit that build, it's like, oh wow, you can really sing. You know, <laughs> I'm kind of like reinventing myself again, guys, at this juncture with with that. Yeah. Which is good. And then all of this other stuff that I've done is kind of like the backstory, which is good. But for me, I've always wanted to sing. And the reason is, it's an instant response. I mean, when, when we do a show, when we do a, 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 a movie, we don't know what the response is going to be until we go and we sit in the movie. Right. When you do a play or you sing or, or you perform you know, comedy live, you get that immediate response. But with singing, it's a connection and I, I don't want to sound heavy-handed. It's almost a connection with this, with your soul, because think about it. The people in Japan don't know all the words to the Beatles songs, but they know how it makes them feel. The sounds and the tones. I mean, the lyrics of a song are all the same, right? Yeah. But when Frank Sinatra sings a certain song, or when Roger Callard sings a certain song, or Kenny Rogers, or or Marvin Gaye, or whoever it is. It's how you make that person feel about what it is you're singing. And what does that is the tone, the rhythm, the melody. And it's not really about the words. A lot of it is punctuated by your memory with that song. Like when you hear a certain song from your youth, you're immediately transported back to that time. It's not that you're listening so much to the song, but you're thinking about that moment when she broke up with you or when you just got out of school and it was spring or you went to the beach or, or you got, you smoked dope for the first time, or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it was, whatever, you know, or you had a new, you got a new car and you played it on the radio. So music has that, kind of magical quality to take people out of where they're at and almost transport them to to another place so it's not about what you're singing it's how you're making them feel about and, and the sounds are what do it the tone it's a magical thing is what is what i'm getting to i used to open for some groups and if it was a if it was a cowboy group i would sing um el paso if it was kind of a cowboy town with upscale i'd sing lady if it was a black crowd kind of a upscale crowd i'd sing on the wings of love if it was kind of a a, a real soulful i would sing papa was a rolling stone if it was a lot of yuppies i'd sing horse with no name so i would <laughs> i would try to sing songs that related to the the demographic and the, the ethnicity of the, of the crowd. And uh, that's what a lot of filmmakers do. If you look at Ivan Reitman, he's a master at putting ethnic types, music, product placement. You know, when you watch a movie, if you see a guy drinking a Pepsi or you hear a song from the 60s, bam, you're, you're there. I mean, and that he was, he was brilliant at that. 
you know, look at Ghostbusters. You got Hudson, you know, uh, Aykroyd, the other guy who I can never remember his name, the other Canadian guy. But you mix all these different ethnicities, and Weird Al did it very well, too. He did it very well with, with his show. I think he's very smart. I think he's a lot smarter than what people give him credit as a filmmaker. He knows how to make these little subtle mixtures of comedic things and ethnic things and, and music that really kind of compel people to watch his, his shtick. And he, he's hilarious. I mean, he's one of the funniest guys on the planet without even trying. And then with Michael Richards, I mean, <laughs> he, stole, he stole that show. And Kevin McCarthy. Did you get to spend any time with Al or, or Michael? Or I know you said you were... You're there for the Rambo scene. I didn't. I didn't uh, try to intrude with him or anything, but I hung around. Yeah. You know, I hung around, yeah. I didn't. You know, as an actor, you don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to, unless you're on a three or four month shoot with somebody. Then that's different. You know, like when I did Geronimo, Robert Duvall and I would sit down and we would talk about all kinds of stuff from tarpon fishing to tango da- dancing and. <laughs> living in New York with Dusty Kaufman and, and Gene Hackman, you know, uh, but when you don't have that, that opportunity, you, it's kind of an awkward thing to, to try to be a fan or include it in. I think there's a certain code of professionalism that, and it, once you're kind of uh, reprimanded for it, like guys like Russell Crowe or, Christian Bale or, or uh, Val Kilmer, mm. they go crazy. You know, some of those guys go crazy when you intrude upon them. So, you know, a lot of them are into the, the whole, you know, uh, method acting where you can't talk to them. Right, don't, right. Can't, <laughs> I can't look at them. <laughs> I don't get that impression from Al. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was never like that either because I grew up in Athens. I was a doctor. You know, some guy tells me I can't look at him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Grow up. (laughs) If they tell you that you can't look at him, I'm sure all you have to do is flex and they'll uh, back down. (laughs) Well, I wasn't just strong. I was a really good athlete. So I, they call me the doctor because the way I operate, not because I was a human crane. (laughs) (laughs) I was one of those rare guys that, I was big, but I was a Cadillac. I was smooth. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Al wearing the fake chest in the Rambo scene, but in Conan, the librarian, that is legit you. There's no prosthetics there. No, no. Just that crazy outfit, right. the wig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jay into the hysteric. <laughs> <laughs> now, every photo I see of you online has a mustache. Did you have to shave your mustache to be Conan? I did. I did. How was that? It was, it was traumatic. Yeah. You know, was like, <laughs> who, is, who is this guy? I've had a mustache since I was like 14. I would hold my hand over my face in like this one class so that one teacher wouldn't look at it. <laughs> it wasn't much, but it was my 14-year-old mustache, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of funny when you, when you, you know, and growing up in the 70s, you know, everybody had facial hair. So it's just kind of one of those things that, that you know, like Selleck or Elliot Gould or, or uh, Sam Elliott. I mean, right. You just, 
you you feel naked without it. You see that lip and you go, what the hell is that? What's that other lip? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because people talk about, you know, but it's kind of coming back. Don't you think? Totally. Totally. Yeah. The long hair, the bell bottom. It's funny. I got in an argument with a kid one time. He goes, I wouldn't, I didn't have to be alive when Beethoven was playing to appreciate his music, I said, because he was listening to the music that we listened to when I was a kid. And I said, no, you, you don't have to be alive to appreciate it, but you had to be alive to really know the impact of it. Right. And what, what it meant. Cause you can't just listen to a song and suddenly think you're in the seventies. It's like, you know, wanting to have kids and then having kids the one thing and having are two different things and and i I know the reason that people are doing that because that era was a time when we questioned everything now today we're terrified of every little thing and we're we're kind of like a bunch of old grandmothers and and don't take this wrong i have nothing against grandmothers grandmothers are great (laughs) but we don't need a country run by grandmothers it's almost like being a man is something that's, you know, forbidden. Oh, he's too manly, you know. And that's why when we do comedy about Conan the Librarian, people embrace it because it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But it wouldn't be so funny how- if I if I looked like Gandhi, like Jay Levy up there being Conan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would. Yeah. I don't know. How long were you on the set to film Conan and the Librarian? Oh, probably a week, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was very, it was just one of those things that you did that you knew was going to be funny. You just didn't know if it was going to be a hit or not. Right. Yeah. And, you know, because I've never seen a director laying on the hard cement floor rolling around, <laughs> fighting <laughs> over there, trying to be quiet, you know. <laughs> As an actor... You know, you, you can't help but see that. I don't know if, if you notice I did the homage to Curly when I sliced the guy's head in half. I crossed my eyes. That was <laughs> like right, yes. That was homage to Curly. One of my <laughs> I was going to ask you about that scene because that is one of my favorite scenes where you sliced that child in half who had his overdue library books. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on in that in that scene? Film that they had. They brought in this prosthetic, and uh, and I'm like, is this really going to work? You know. And, and I had a sword, of course, and I and I we only I think we only had one shot at it to do it. So because I think we only had one of those things that they wow. split. So yeah, it just came out perfect. <laughs> And the kid was perfect too. He was like, you know, kind of sweet and innocent. <laughs> yeah. So just one take of the chop. How many takes of lifting the guy? Uh, not that many. Yeah. Not, not that. Not that many. You know, you do the setup. You know, the, the planning, which was very, I thought, very uh, effective. The way they they panned with right. the with, with the camera on the rollers. You know, as you come in. You're, you just kind of see my, my torso and then you pan up. <laughs> but you go through the library <laughs> never before and then you fumble, fumble. <laughs> I mean, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. The, 
person that you kind of have that was entirely prosthetic. That was no like like uh, whatever the 1989 equivalent of CGI was. That was all just what what you saw is what you got. It was just a quick cut to that prosthetic, you know, split. Yeah. I think wow. we might have stopped at his head, and then just you make a quick cut. Now the movie I just did, almost all of it was green screen. Oh wow! Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Most of your heavy action films now are green screen. You know, I mean, there's great stunt work, but a lot of it is is you know CDI and um, not CDI, but uh, green screen. You know, you you're not gonna place an actor over a ledge and hang him there. Right. You know? Right. Of course. Although when yeah. I was coming up, I don't know if you guys ever saw the Wonder Woman that I did years ago called Screaming Javelin, where I was with Henry Gibson from laughing. Hmm. He was like, he was like this evil uh, guy who kidnaps all the world's greatest athletes and makes them compete for this fictitious country called Mesopotamia, almost like the Three Stooges thing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in a phone booth talking to my mother and this, this skyhook comes in and it's supposed to be a helicopter. And they pick me up in the phone book, they lift me up. <laughs> so when we came to that scene, they had to lift me up with a crane about 70 or 80 feet. And I was a general contractor and I looked at the guy and I said, you know, those bolts on the bottom of, all you had in there was, was the floor. And then there was a handle that was welded into the phone book that you could hold on to. Okay. So I looked at the, at the bottom of the phone booth and there's four 316 bolts holding the floor. And I told the guy, his name was George Robotham. He was a famous stunt coordinator. I said, George, you need, you know, you need three eighths inch bolts or, or, or a quarter inch bolts. He goes, well, what are you talking about? I said, I'm a contractor. I goes, oh. he goes, oh, they'll hold you. So we went up and they jerked me around going up and down. And now the scene comes where the helicopter has to cut in and lift it up. You see, it's the continuation of it. Right. They just use the crane to, to get the hook up and then to take me away in it, they use the helicopter. Well, now the helicopter lifts it up and takes it away. And guess what? The floor falls out of it. Oh, no. Huh. I'm not in it. Good. The guy looks at me and he goes, I'm going to give you a nice bump, which means <laughs> they're going to give you a nice payday. And I think he almost paid me what I made that day. Wow. Which was unheard of. Wow. But he just looked at me with these big blue eyes and said, I'll give you a nice bump. <laughs> wow. I go, yeah, I would have wow. got a nice bump if I'd have been in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. <laughs> you know, I'd have been hanging on to that, that handle, you know, but dangling like 100 feet up in the air, which would have been a long time to get to the ground because, but stuff happened, you know? Yeah. Wow. I knew the girl who got paralyzed on the Burt Reynolds film doing stunts. I mean, so I think a lot of that has been mitigated with the uh, the green screen and yeah. you know, camera. Yeah. But it's still dangerous. You know, when you got cars and swords and when there's a lot of stuff going on, people get, Arnold said, and Conan guys are getting cut left and right, you know, during the big mm-hmm. battle scenes. I'm, I'm sure in Lord of the Rings, people were getting cut and hurt. When we did Total Recall, we all had those helmets with the with the face thing on because when we would shoot somebody, we had sand in the gun, so it had powder and sand. So when you 
you hit something, it would make like an impact like you hit it. Oh, okay. And guys' lips were, were all raw from getting <laughs> That was the only thing you could see was getting hit with that fan. Jeez. And Paul Verhoeven was the most fun to work with because he'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do it like this, right? You come in, tap, 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 yeah? That'll, that'll be good, yeah? And uh, he was just, he was such an energetic director and good guy and really made Rutger Hauer. Did The Soldier of Orange. He did all those great films. You don't hear much from them. I mean, as they get older, like Walter Hill, they just kind of fade away a little bit. But I had a great run with some great directors, and, and certainly the the experience with Jay was was one of the most memorable because <laughs> he's kind of a little guy too, and he's just funny. He's one of those people yeah. when you look at him, you just want to laugh. It's infectious. <laughs> you can just see the you know the cogs move, kind of like. Weird Al, you look at and you laugh, and he's just not, he's somewhere else. I mean, he's just in character. But yeah, yeah. What, what an experience to, to be on that show. And then guys like Kevin McCarthy from The Body Snatchers, I mean, to go from that to, you know, UHF, <laughs> it's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then dad, oh, dad. Now, in the Conan scene, was that a real sword that you had, or was that a prop sword? It was a prop. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was heavy, though. It, it, it hit you. It, it would cut you. Yeah, it looks real. It looks yeah. a prop. <laughs> heavy well, duty. Those big stores, are bit, you know, they'll cut you just like a regular one. They're so heavy. It doesn't take much to get cut. Either blunt drama or, you know, the faster something goes, the more it'll cut, even if it's not metal. Do they let you keep any of the, uh, you know, accoutrements or anything from the costume? Uh, in some shows they do, but on a small one like that, I, I wouldn't think so. No. <laughs> Who knows? But that, uh, that outfit's probably in props somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably got a lot of dust on it at yeah. this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there'll be a uh, Chinese Groman wax figure anytime soon, no. but you never know. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I get my hit song, maybe. <laughs> When you filmed UHF, all these years had passed since you had stopped competing in bodybuilding competitions, but you still had the physique of a bodybuilder. Were you keeping up with, you know, the same regimen that you, you had going before that? Well, it's like a diet. You establish a lifestyle. My lifestyle is I go to the gym. If I don't have that mustache and I don't go to the gym, I'm not myself. So once you establish that, that way of life, like I was talking about, you keep it. Yep. And that's how I was able to stay in shape. I'm very active. Yep. I'm outside all day long. I'm working. I work out. I'm actually, I built a, mach- a workout machine that I marketed and I'm going to come out with. Cool. Which I work out in, in my house. But yeah, I, I've always went to the gym. You know, you, you don't, if you do something all your life, you don't just stop doing it because you're not competing. I didn't work out to compete. I worked out to be the best I could be. Competing was a, was a byproduct of getting in great shape. You know, you got to remember when we started, we did it for the love of the sport. We, we didn't do it for the money. Arnold was really one of the first guys and myself, Frank Zane, we were the first ones to create seminars to make money, posing exhibitions. Hmm. 
there was, there was nothing like that before. And then it grew the supplements, it grew the personal appearances, but we did it. And the guys from that golden era, we did it because we enjoyed it. And most of us were good athletes, most of us, which is why I, how I got into bodybuilding is I wanted to run faster, jump higher, hit the ball further. I've just always worked out. I started training when I was like five years old. I was wow. working out. At 12, wow. I got my first set of weight. <laughs> and, uh, wow. I think I broke my brother's ribs at 13 because he ran over me with the bike. But oh, no. oh, he geez. made a mistake at giving me a set of weights at 12. And by that time, I was already beating guys in arm wrestling that were 25 and making 20 bucks, you know. <laughs> you think about it, that was like two, $300 then. And he would set up these matches. When I was nine... I was really fast. I was like when I was 13, I was beating the guys in high school. Wow. And so when I was nine years old, he would bring the track team to my house. And these guys had the school record in the mile relay. And he, he goes, I'll bet you all $20. You can't catch my brother. <laughs> he goes, he goes, you know, he's nine years old. <laughs> he goes, yeah. <laughs> now remember, this is 1959. 20 bucks was probably like $400. Wow. And you could buy gas with like you know, a nickel and freaking, it was ridiculous. <laughs> you could buy a whole outfit for $6, you know, a pair of wow. wingtips. You could pay four bucks and get a whole outfit. But he would bet them 20 bucks they couldn't catch me. So here's the mistake. They were thinking foot race. They didn't think obstacle course. So I would stand like 10 feet away and count to three and they would come after me but i'd run around these trees like like uh, almost meandering around these trees and then i'd go into the barn and very few of them made it to the barn but most of them were slipping in the grass with their white pants and everybody wore white <laughs> grass stains, and they're out there like shelling out twenty dollars to my brother and he'd make a hundred dollars <laughs> did he share it with you or <laughs> Well, he bought me a shotgun and a set of weights. Okay. Well. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, took a while. it took a while. I was nine when, you know, he was right. saving up. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, but I grew up with all these kind of like, you know, combat kind of tests, you know, chasing and eluding people. And whenever I would run from, from the cops or anything, I would hide immediately. Because we, we used to play this game called kick the can. And you would hide and then you'd find the person and you'd run back and kick the can before they caught you. But <laughs> think about that. Most people get caught in these pursuits because they keep running. Right. As soon as you get out of sight, hide. Because they don't expect you to stop. <laughs> Why were you running from the cops? I had a red Datsun pickup. Imagine this scenario. <laughs> I had a red Datsun pickup, fire engine red, with a banana yellow rack on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a four-cylinder, 1,800cc truck. So I pull out, and I make a left turn, or I do something, and here come the cops. I got my buddy with him. We're working construction. Okay. The first alley I come to, I pull in, and I pull into a parking lot in a, a multi-unit dwelling, and I pull right in, and I stop immediately. 
They went flying by me. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> I told my buddy, I go, well, I think this is a good place to have lunch. And, and so this day, he goes, how in the hell did you outrun those cars? I said, well, when I made the left turn, they couldn't see me. So they didn't know where I was. They expected me to keep running. <laughs> I outran the cops in 30 seconds with a Johnson, red Johnson pickup with a <laughs> banana yellow rack. I bet those cops yeah. are still scratching their heads. <laughs> oh, yeah. They had no idea where I was. <laughs> run from them. Well, think about most of these guys who get caught. They, they ended up, they find them there. They've been living like right next to the police station for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, but I'm talking about serious crime, not, you know, just because I made an illegal record. I had some yeah. grass with me and I, I was working. I didn't want to stop. So I said, fuck it, I'm just going to elude these guys. <laughs> and I did it. I did it so quick and so easy. Because of the first rule of pursuit, hide. Another time we're in the park and we're having this fight with a rival group of guys, and the cops come, right? Everybody just spreads every which way. Well, I run towards this area where there's a fence, and right beside the fence, there's like a bathroom with the, with the eaves that come right down to the top of the fence. And the cop is right behind me, and I get to the top of the fence, and my flannel shirt gets stuck on the fence. <laughs> so I jump over to the roof that's right there in the dark, like a foot away from the fence, right? And I lay down on the roof that's dark. <laughs> and I walks over and looks at looks at the fence, and he sees a piece of my shirt in the fence, and he goes, "He must have went that way." I could have reached out and flicked his helmet with my head. <laughs> That's how close he was to me. But again, what happened? He thought I was running. I was hiding. I ran, I ran 30 feet and hid because I got stuck on the fence. I didn't have time to get over. So I jumped on that roof right there like a, a fly on a wall. And I literally could have knocked his hat off his head like the priest do. That's so great. He's looking like, you know, the back of his head. Well, I guess he went that way. Wow. I'm just trying to hold my breath and not laugh. Because, you know, I could just take his hat and throw it off. Wow. But again, I don't know how we got to that, but that was my life as a kid. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Roger, I mean, I mentioned the the intro, all these insanely impressive bodybuilding titles you, you've had over the years. But what is the difference between Mr. USA and Mr. America? Mr. America is, is more prestigious. Mm, okay. And the Mr. International is like the that's like a world title. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, they compared me to Ar Arnold in the way that I dominated amateur bodybuilding and the way that I wasn't acting, which I thought was a nice compliment. Very cool. If I didn't win, I, I, was, I came in pretty close to winning in almost every show I was in. I had a good run. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> well, people used to ask me, what's my best body part? And I said, all of them. Said, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, really, together. It's the package. If you've got one good body part, you're a freak. You know, you're Tom Plout or something. <laughs> you're a centaur, you know. You're half man, half horse. What's a uh, typical training session for you like? Today, like today? Or when you're in your prime. When I was in my prime? I trained for about 
uh, hour and a half, two hours a day. And then some days we would train twice a day, like an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half. Like Arnold and I would do double sessions and we had, we'd go watch the three stooges <laughs> smoke a doobie. <laughs> and then there was this park where this woman had this monkey and we would park there and watch this monkey jump around in the trees. <laughs> and then he goes, We'd go to the gym again. <laughs> so like three days a week, we did double sets. So we did nine workouts a week when we were training for a show, wow. which was wow. 12 weeks. But so the last 12 weeks, the last three months, you would train nine times a week. You'd do double sessions three days a week. Wow. And we'd train, you know, six days a week. Well, that was our life. That That's what we did. That was our offer. You know, like people said, well, when you were in the gym, you were... You were very serious. I go, yeah, well, if I came into your fucking office and tried to get you off the phone when you're talking <laughs> right, to make a sale, right. you know, it, it's a different thing. They, they just think right. you're in the gym, you know, screwing around. That was our job. Yeah. Our job was to go to the gym, go to the beach, get tan, and, and you know, get laid. <laughs> that, was our, that was our job, was to go to the gym. You know? <laughs> You can't be like Mr. Congeniality in the gym. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're training for a show. You, know, you can't be Mr. Happy Happington. Like the happy guy, Jim Carrey's happy guy. Right. Running <laughs> right. Yeah. Roger, we, we are excited to check out the new film, The Dwarf Hammer. And yeah. when is that coming out? Do we know when that's going to be released? Well, there's a lot of editing involved with this film because there's a lot of green screen. Right. We went into the the COVID bullshit, and we had to, um, you know, do a lot of stuff on green screen with minimal uh, talent and minimal crew. Right. So it could be next year. Yeah. But I have a feeling he's he's gonna get as much done this year as he can and maybe have a 21 release. And I think it'll be a good film because I think there's going to be a lot of interest in content because there hasn't been a lot of major productions. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was done during this pandemic, and that'll be an interesting footnote to a lot of things that are done. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think it's a good project because it's uh it's the Lord of the Rings genre. It's the, it'll, it'll attract kids. It'll attract people because it has a strong story and a, and a lot of strong themes like slave trafficking and the proletariat, you know, the, the upper class against the, the, the little class. The, and, of course, the, the fantasy of it, you know. The dwarf hammer has great power, you know. Do you cut anyone in half in the film? Well, actually, I, I end up doing a lot of the fighting because I'm the grandfather who has the son and the grandson that I dub as the new dwarf hammers, but they screw up. So I have to go to war. With oh, them. that's awesome. And I end up kind of showing them that I can still do it. So it's kind of like Charles Bronson, yep. you know? Yeah, that's great. Right. The unlikely hero that can still do it. You know, as we get older, it's harder to find those those roles that we can really, really bite into. And that's one of the reasons I came back is because 
you can be a big frog in a big pond or you can be a big frog in a little pond. But you can sometimes do what you want to do in that smaller pond, in that smaller arena. And here in Michigan, I can kind of create that backdrop and that that uh, vehicle to do what I'm what I'm capable of doing, what I've always been capable of doing, but never got the chance. And a perfect segue: the singing career that you're, you're yeah. launching. So the first song, "Lost Melody." Um, and your, your, of course, your singing name is King Callard. Yeah. And you recorded this at Broken Blanket Studios in Detroit. When do we get to hear Lost Melody? Is there a release schedule for that one set up? We'll definitely have that this year. Awesome. And and probably you know, soon. And, and yes, I think that that, Ethan, will open the doors to the things that I do and maybe eyes and attention because of, of the singing. I think it's it's a great opportunity. It's something that it's almost spiritual for me that I feel like this is what I was supposed to do. And this, this is the way I was supposed to do it. You know, be more of an entertainer rather than, you know, Arnold's sidekick, right. which kind of hurt me in the business mm-hmm. because in acting and in Hollywood, you're put in a category. Unless we reinvent ourselves and step out of the market or the, the game that we're in, we're never sometimes going to achieve what we're capable of of achieving. So maybe my wife's dying and capitulating me moving back to Michigan was in fact, you know, the best thing because now it's, it's given me that opportunity to make music and and to star in films and, and to do roles that maybe some people didn't think I was capable of doing. So sometimes there's a blessing when we don't really see it. Some doors have to close for others to open. And I think we, ha- we have to be kind of patient, but we also have to recognize when there's a great opportunity. And my point is I'm just happy doing what I'm doing. And to have guys like you, you know, recognizing UHF, it's wonderful. You know, it tells me how old I am, but it also tells me that <laughs> we did something that stood the test of time. Oh, absolutely. Roger, thank you so much. This is really, really awesome. Oh, well, thank you. It was, it was fun. It was, uh, what's the old saying? It was fun and it was real, but it wasn't real fun. No. <laughs> it, it, it really was. It really was. It, it was. It's great to meet people who are passionate about what they do and, and just to have an interest in, in, in the things that have punctuated our lives. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to be significant when we do things, but I think, you know, moving back to a rural community, I've seen how people have embraced me and it's like, I'm, I'm their hero in a way because I've shown them that you can be from anywhere to do things. And so maybe that's our message sometimes when we, when we come home is to show people that uh, it's not the places that make people think, people famous it's the people from those little towns and those little places and we can be from anywhere it's the message that you can do it you can be from french lake indiana and be a great basketball player or you can you can be from ellenville new york or wordsville or you know upstate (laughs) wherever you're from you can do something you don't have to be from new york city or la or philadelphia you can be from these little places and that's 
that's the beauty of it, you know, is that our work touches people from every, everywhere in every walk of life. Thank you so much to Roger Callard. How awesome was it getting to chat with Conan the Librarian, Dave? <laughs> that was so awesome. And Roger and I have this great kindred spirit because we both played Conan the Librarian. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't go through any of that other stuff, did you? <laughs> no, I haven't launched my singing career quite yet. Although I do think I did do a good job on our parody of Spatula City. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Now, one thing that really surprised me when I was doing research for this interview is that Conan the Librarian actually wasn't invented by Al and Jay for UHF. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah. So... <laughs> I thought that was an original Weird Al Yankovic joke. <laughs> no, it, it's it's amazing. So actually in the 70s, Monty Python's Flying Circus introduced Conan the Librarian. And Conan the Librarian also showed up many other places over the years, including You Can't Do That on Television. He was a character on Reading Rainbow. And there was even a Conan the Librarian comic book in 1982. You know, it wasn't like a Marvel comic book. It was, you know, a small run (laughs) thing. But definitely it was a joke that had been used over and over again. But I think first brought to life in a brilliant fashion by Weird Al. Well, that's so interesting. So I do know that Al is, of course, a fan of Monty Python. So I wonder if he had known about the Conan, the librarian clip before. And and that's why he worked it into the UHF script. I would say it's either an homage to Monty Python or a complete coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) We do know that he took Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse from a Mad Magazine article way back when. So it probably was an homage to Monty Python. Yeah, that's a good call. You know, each week we can bring you this podcast absolutely free thanks to sponsors like Burrito Burrito, Angel Valenzuela and his son David Cash, and our amazing Patreon supporters like JM, Richard, and so many more. Patreon helps us pay the bills and ensures that we can do what we love, and that's making fun, family-friendly, entertaining Weird Al podcasts for you every single week. Please join us in thanking all of our supporters over on patreon.com slash 2000inch for making this podcast possible. And please consider joining our Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. Another way to support the podcast is by getting on Fuzzball the Game Show and showing off your amazing Gil and Chillo. <laughs> you can pick those up from our official merchandise shop over at shop.2000inch.com. You can pick up a Gil and Chillo and so much more. Thanks again to Roger Callard and all of our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and thanks to everyone who follows at 2000inch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to join our Facebook group by heading on over to group.2000inch.com if you have not already. Do your part and tag fun, weird Al, or podcast-related posts on social media using hashtag 2000inch and hashtag Gil and Chill. Find us online at weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com. Make sure to share our posts, tell your friends about the podcast, and we love it when you leave us voice messages on our 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347-SPATULA. It's a real number. You can call that number, and it rings, and you can leave a message, and then Frank gets that message, and then he prints it out, and then he gives it a Dewey Decimal number, and then he files it away for future reference. And then maybe 27 years in the future, Dave and I will be going through our archives, and we'll find your message, and we'll transport it into ones and zeros, and plug it into our computer, and then we can hear your voice, we can hear your lovely message, 
message, and maybe we'll even play it on the air. You already know where to find us, but do yourselves a favor and head on over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or the podcast app of your choice and hit that subscribe button. This way you do not miss a single episode. New episodes drop every Wednesday, but bonus content can drop at any time. Hint, hint. And if you loved Roger Callard as much as Dave and I did, you're going to want to become a Patreon subscriber right now because we will be posting an extended cut of our interview with him. He had so much to say, there just wasn't enough to fit in one episode. So head over, become a Patreon supporter, and you can check out that soon. Keep an eye on Patreon for that secret episode with all that extended goodness. That was Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al Podcast, episode 65A. Hey, um, can you tell me where I could find a podcast about Weird Al? Don't you know Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast?